All right, well, good morning again. I'm so glad that you are here today. We are winding down this year. This is what we're calling the year of discipleship, week number 50. Uh, I do, like Justin said, I have two more Bible reading plans, all right? So I'm going to keep mentioning this until they're all gone, all right? We have three weeks of reading left. It's not too late to join us, week number 50. Uh, we are in this final series of the year called All Things uh, New, um, final weeks of this final series. Uh, let me give you just a heads up. Those of you that are following along in the Bible reading plan, typically what happens is the sermon on Sunday is coming out of our, uh, our uh, Bible reading for the upcoming week. Uh, we're a little off kilter these last few weeks because I'm trying to sneak in a sermon in the book of Revelation, okay? And that's coming next week. I'm not going to dive into all the craziness in there, okay? But we're, we're going to end with, uh, we're going to be in 1 John today, next week in Revelation, and then we're going to wrap up the year on Christmas Eve. And just as a little plug for our services on Christmas Eve, we'll be having uh, two services, 4 p.m. and also 5.15 p.m. Um, and then on Christmas Day, Sunday the 25th, we will have no in-person gatherings. Y'all stay at home worship the Lord together uh, in your pajamas, okay, or pajamas or PJs or whatever you want to call them. Um, and then uh, on New Year's Day, January the 1st, we'll have one service at 1045. Uh, we'll do a little bit more worship on that day, extended worship, and celebrate Lord's Supper together. Uh, and Andrew Poston will be with us really on, on all of those, those dates. So excited to, to worship with you. So we are in this season of, of Christmas, what we call the Advent season, and one of the primary themes is, is love. Uh, we sang about it this morning, but really the season is all about love. And, and I think of a couple Christmas songs. One you'll, you'll may be familiar with, one I'm, you're, I'm pretty sure you won't be familiar with. There was years ago, our family was at a church uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they, were, they produced their own Christmas show, and they, they did this song called uh, baby love crashed into the world. And I was like, if you have kids and you want a catchy tune, um, you know, this is a good one. Baby love crashed into the world. Go Spotify it. All right. Uh, great song. But like, I, I always think of this song because it's this idea that love in the form of, you know, baby Jesus came crashing in, came and infiltrated our world. Uh, and so I think of that song, um, you know, my wife and everyone in our family will start automatically singing that song. It's stuck in your head. It's a good one. Um, there's another one, uh, called Love Came Down at Christmas. Um, it's an old, old, old hymn. Uh, I only know it because it was uh, redone by Jars of Clay in the early 2000s. Love Came Down at Christmas. But I love these songs that give us this reminder that, that love in the person of Jesus came into our world. And, you know, at, at Christmas, it's really all about love, that the ultimate expression of love is that God sent his son into the world to save us from our sin. Amen? The, the ultimate expression, thank you, the ultimate expression of love is that God sent his son into the world to save us from our sin. Amen? Okay. You were awake for the amen earlier. Y'all, okay. Um, so, the ultimate expression of love. But here, here's the deal is that the subject of love has gotten confused and somewhat twisted in our culture. And yet love is at the core of, of the gospel, at the heart of what the gospel is all about. And so today we're going to talk about the kind of love that counts, the kind of love that counts. We're talking about biblical gospel motivated love. And so we're going to be in the book of 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. Let me give you some background on this letter. It's really important in light of what we're seeing. It's always important when you go to the Word of God to understand the context. This letter written by John, well, well here's the deal. The, the letter itself doesn't 
name its audience in particular, like a certain church, um, and, and it also doesn't it necessarily name John as the author, although um, there's strong evidence internally and externally that John, the Apostle John, was the writer of this, so much so that they named the, the letter John, right? Um, he was one of the sons of, of Zebedee in the New Testament, him and his brother uh, James, James, and John, they were known as the, the sons of thunder. It was like they were a tag team wrestling um, combo, you know, but the, the sons of thunder, they were disciples of, of Jesus. Um, James uh, and John were both part of Jesus' inner core, his, his inner three disciples. Five times in the New Testament, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, do y'all, this is a little bit of trivia, y'all know which book of the Bible um, those five instances come up where he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved? Anybody know? It's the self-titled gospel, John, all right? So John, I think this is hilarious, John the apostle five times is speaking in third person, being like, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, who is that? Well, me, it's me. Um, so really a super humble dude. Um, so John, the apostle, he wrote the gospel of John, the account of Jesus, one of the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, he also wrote these three brief letters at the, at the very end of the New Testament, first, second, third, John. These were three separate letters. Uh, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. So very accomplished author in his own right, this disciple, the apostle John. Now I want to read 1 John 5, 13 because this verse at the conclusion of this letter, lets you know the purpose of why John was writing. He says this in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. All right, so he, he in a sense, is, is speaking to uh, an audience in general, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So the audience is believers, those who are followers of Jesus. And he says, this is why I'm writing to you, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing so that you would know you have eternal life. In other words, this is a word that we might use as his purpose was to give assurance of their salvation, of their relationship with God. He's in essence answering this question in this letter, do you have eternal life? Are you a true Christian, a true follower of Christ? And, and I just want to take a minute to unpack, because some of you will, if you're hopefully reading through this Bible reading plan, you're going to come through the book of 1 John in a week or so. Uh, and I just want to unpack uh, uh, this quickly. There's really three answers, three answers to this question throughout 1 John. There's three tests, a doctrinal test, a moral test, and a uh, love test. So the doctrinal test Throughout this book, he answers this question. Do you believe, or asks this question, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? So over and over and over, he talks about believing, believing in this Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. So it's important what you believe. But then he, he talks about this, this, really, this moral test. He, he goes on to say, it's not just what you believe, but do you obey God's commands? This is how you can, you know, you can kind of look at the fruit of somebody or your own life and say, do I actually not just believe? It's easy to say, I believe that Jesus is God, but do you obey his commands? This is a moral test. And then there's the love test, which is this. Do you love God and his children? Do you love God? Do you love other believers? These are these tests that will let you know, am I, do I have eternal life? Am I actually a follower of Christ? Like in reality, or is it just a name? 
And so a lot of times I'll talk about in, in, in the realm of our spiritual growth and following after Christ, uh, like head, heart, hands. So this kind of applies to that. Like, like it's not just the head knowledge, believing that Jesus is, is the Son of God. It's, it's also loving. It's coming out of your heart. But then it's, it flows out of your hands. It's, it's obedience to God as well. And when you see all three of these things, and again, if you read through or when you read through First John, you'll see these things come up over and over and over. If you want to know if you're a true follower of Christ head, heart, hands. Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you obey his commands? Do you actually love others and other believers? So this, this, the interesting thing about the book of 1 John is that there is no mention of the actual word gospel, which means good news. But when you read it, one thing you see very clearly is that 1 John is thoroughly drenched. It's soaked in gospel truth about the love and the grace of God. And so let me take a second to, to pause and just give a little side note here. Um, you know, we said early on this year and really all along the way, this year of discipleship, our hope is that this would be for you and for us the greatest year of spiritual growth ever. And I've heard from some of you that that has certainly been the case. And my hope has just been that, that you and I, we would grow in the gospel in particular, that we would grow in depth of, of understanding this. And so uh, it's been cool this year because we've walked through the Old Testament and how that all points to Jesus. And then we came into the, the New Testament and saw the life and the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. And that forms the essence of the gospel, the good news. And then we've seen for these last few months, like the gospel, the truth of, of God's grace going throughout all the world, forming the church and then expanding into all the world. And I, I like I've loved the freedom to be able to bang the gospel drum over these last few weeks. Now I always, I'm always trying to preach the gospel, but I feel um, more of this level of comfort for where we can talk about the gospel, we can preach really nothing but the gospel, and y'all are, are are growing in your understanding and love and affection for the gospel. And and so I love being able to bang that gospel drum. And so y'all, if you feel free to call me little drummer boy, if you'd like to this month only, okay? Uh, as long as we're banging the gospel drum. And so there's four questions. If you've been around any length of time, you've heard me talk about these four questions. These may be new to you. Uh, I don't think we can talk about these enough because these four questions help us to uh, be rooted in the gospel and keep the gospel central. Four questions are, are, go this way. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? So, you know, as, as Human beings, as selfish creatures, we tend to start with us. What do I do? Tell, to just tell me what, what I'm supposed to do to be a good person or a better Christian. Just give me some, some things to do. But when we keep the gospel first, we don't start with ourselves. We start with God. Like, what is God like? Who is he? What is his nature? What is his character? What has he done? What is his activity in, in the world and in my life? And based upon who he is and what he's done, now what is my identity? What, do, what does that make me? And what do I, how do I live in response to the truth of who he is and what he's done? And so what we're going to do this morning, um, whenever I talk about these four questions, my go-to passage of scripture to explain these four questions and how to see through this, this gospel lens or this gospel filter is 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read through this. And I encourage you, if you have a, a physical copy of the Bible, uh, I would encourage you to break it out this morning because we're going to walk through this passage. Uh, we're going to ask those four questions. I want to give you, you 
you all a chance to, as we read through these four questions, uh, for you to answer them, all right? So I'm going to give you a chance to, to do this work with me. So as we read through, maybe you can find the answers as we go, and we'll go through each one of them separately. So First John 4, starting at verse number 7, here's what the Apostle John says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Good job, Justin. You nailed it that time. Uh, Verse number 11, beloved, if God so loved the world, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen, has ever seen God. If, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, so here we go. Question number one, who is God? And so if you have your Bible, I want you to open it. I want to see if you can find the answer in there. Anybody see it? Love. Who is God? It literally says, God is love. All right? This is why we go to this passage. It's so clear and simple to see the answers to these questions. Who is God? God is love. So he loves, yes. He is loving, yes. But he is more than loving. He himself, the Bible says, is love. In other words, it is his, his, his very nature. It Love originated from him. He is the source of love. It is who he is. He doesn't just love. He is love. The Bible talks about back in in Genesis in the first couple chapters when God creates man and woman. It says that he creates man in his own image, in his own likeness. In other words, God's fingerprints are, are all over humanity, that there's, there's glimpses of God in every human being because we're created in God's image. And I think one of the greatest ways that we see the image of God in us is just our innate ability to just love. Like, you, you don't teach a human being to love. Love comes naturally. It's because it comes from the source, which is God. God is love. It comes from him. Now, in the original languages, the Bible is translated from, which is Hebrew in the Old Testament, and there's some Aramaic, which is kind of a a cousin language of of Hebrew. And then the New Testament is translated from Greek, which was the common language in in that first century. And and so in these original languages, and this is a very very pastorly thing to do, and I don't think I've ever done this. There's there's three words, three primary words, uh, Greek words, from which that word love is translated. So when, you, when we translate from that original language into English, the, the word for love is love. There's no nuance in that. But you understand this. If you were to say, I love pizza and I love my mama, those are two different kinds of, of love, right? And, and so there are three Greek words uh, that kind of define or help us to understand love. Um, here's the three words. The first one is eros. Eros, which uh, is, is a, a physical or a sexual kind of love. It's, we, we get the English word erotic from that, which most of us would automatically think sinful or, or, or dirty. And, and, but I want you to hear this. It, it can be sinful, but it can also be holy. 
All right, so let's, let's start with holy. Uh, anybody ever read the Song of Solomon? All right. It's chock full of physical, sexual language, but it's all contained within the, the boundaries of, of God-defined marriage between, between a man and a woman. In that context, it's holy. Sex within a marriage is not dirty or sinful. It's what God created. So it's holy. However, outside of the God-ordained structure of, of marriage, sexual activity between a man and a woman outside of that or, or any other way outside of that structure is distorted and sinful. It's not holy. It is, it is just a physical, sexual kind of, of love. And that's why I, I pause when I hear our culture say love is, is love. The Bible says God is love. He is the author, the originator of love, and how he defines it is true love. But nonetheless, eros, it's a, a sexual or physical kind of love. A second kind of love is phileo, which is a, a brotherly love. It's a, a friendship type of love. Y'all understand the word Philadelphia is a city of what? Brotherly love, right? The word philanthropy, it means, you know, love of fellow man. So it's this kind of friendship, brotherly type of, of love. And, and then there's a third word, and this may be the one that, you know, if there's a Greek word that most Christians know, it would be agape. Agape love. And this speaks of this, this highest form of love. In the Old Testament, we talked about this months ago when we were in the, New, the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew kind of equivalent is this word hesed. This, which is translated in the Old Testament, steadfast love. It's this, this never runs out kind of love that God has for us. It's self-sacrificing. It always shows itself by what it does. It's 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, this, this uh, agape, steadfast love. So God is love. Question number one, who is God? God is love. Question number two what has he done? So if you have your Bibles open, take a second and look. What has he done? Or maybe you remember from reading it. God is love. What has he done? He sent his only son. Verses 9 and 10. It says it for us. Verse number 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That word manifest, it means it was revealed to us. It was shown to us. It was, it was made obvious or apparent he wasn't hiding his love from us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this God who, who it says, who is love, has revealed his love to us, made it manifest, made it clear. We could see it literally in the flesh. He sent Jesus. And the reason he says, don't miss this, that he sent Jesus, verse number nine, he says, so that we might live through him. Because spiritually we're all dead in our sins and we need to be made alive. And so he sent Jesus to be the propitiation. Okay, now that you all know how to say the word, do you know what it means? Propitiation, here's, here's what it means. It means that it satisfies the, the holy justice of God. It satisfies the wrath of God. So, so let me tell you 
why this is good news. Because we are sinners, because we are uh, in offense of a holy God, we are guilty against God, uh, we are separated from him. And so something needs to be done with our sin. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation, the one who would, upon the cross, take our sin upon himself, who would, who would suffer the, the wrath of God on the cross in your place. And in doing so became the propitiation, the one who would satisfy the justice and the wrath of God so that we could be in relationship with God. This is what love looks like, amen? This is why he sent his son, so that we could live through him. So what has he done? He has sent his son. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question. Think about this for a second. Is telling somebody God loves you communicating the gospel to them? So if you, you know, were passing by somebody on the street and you said, God loves you, are you giving them the gospel? Or if you were to go to a football game and you were to be one of those uh, folks you know, behind the goalpost that holds up a big sign that says, God loves you, would you be communicating the gospel to them? Here's my answer. Eh, kind of. <laughs> All right. Partially. Incomplete at best. Here's why I say that. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. Your sin separates you from God. But God loves you, and he loves you so much that he, put his, he made his love manifest. He revealed it to you by sending his son to die in your place, to save you from your sin so that you could be his, so that you could be his son or daughter. Just to say God loves you, man, that's, that's an incomplete gospel. You're a sinner, and, and the way that he proved his love to you is that he has sent his son to die in your place, to free you, to forgive you, to give you life. That is the gospel. And here's, here's the deal. When it comes to love, love, agape love, isn't just feeling, it's action. It's action. God's love had to be made manifest. It had to lead to saving activity. Because loving, and this is true in all of life, loving feelings or loving words must lead to loving actions or it isn't truly loving. To feel love towards somebody, to say I love you, those words must lead to loving action or it isn't truly loving, it's just words. It has to lead to action. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, you, maybe you have a dog and you say, I, I have a dog. I love her. I don't feed her. I don't talk to her. I don't play with her. But, oh, I love her. And we would all call that into question, right? It would be reasonable to go, hmm, I don't think that means what you think it means, all right? Um, no, loving words or feelings must lead to loving action or it isn't truly Loving And the way that God proved his love is he sent his son to die in your place, to die in my place. And it's, it's virtually impossible. You know, we're talking about these four questions. Question one, who is God? Question two, what has he done? It's virtually impossible to separate these two from each other because what God does always flows out of who he is. So his activity flows out of his person. He... he loves because he is love. Does that make sense? It all flows out of that. And so, uh, and, and he's, never, he's never out of character. 
Okay, and, and I say that because sometimes, and maybe you've done that, that, uh, this at some point, or even this year as you've read through the Bible, you look at God in the Old Testament, you go, hmm, God seems kind of cranky and angry sometimes and violent, but then we move over to, here to the New Testament, and he's all love and grace and forgiveness. And like, are we talking about two different gods here? Like, what is going on here? Uh, no, God is love. God was love. He is love. He will be love. And this is who he is, his character. Even harsh actions came out of a heart of love. In fact, you see God over and over dealing with sin and sin. And then what happens? He sends his son to pay for our sin. And that's why that's the beauty of of Christmas, that we celebrate this love that has been made manifest because grumpy God who keeps dealing with sin has sent a way to deal with sin in the person of Jesus. Amen? He still loves, and everything he has done from beginning to end is out of his person, out of this heart of love. He is the one who is love. So who is God? God is what? love. What has he done? He sent his only son into the world to die for us. Question three. So in light of those two truths, who am I? So take a look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Anybody want to hazard a guess on who we are? We are sinners, but I heard a lot of blah, 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 blah. So I'll give you the answer because I think somebody probably got it. Verse number seven starts with one word. Verse number 11 starts with one word. Beloved. Beloved. You can say beloved. I'm a pastor. I'm obligated to say beloved, okay? You, I can't say dearly beloved. You were gathered here. It just doesn't sound right. Beloved. Beloved. Here's what that word beloved means. It, it means dearly loved. It means cherished. It means treasured. It means highly valued. Near to one's heart. And so let's pause there for a second because here's the truth. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are a follower of, of Jesus, you have put your trust in him, you are son or daughter of God, this is who you are. You're beloved. You are the beloved. You are dearly loved by God. You are cherished. You are, tr you are treasure to God. You are highly valued. You are near his heart. This is who you are. Are. Don't miss this. But this is all born out of who God is, what He has done. If you doubt that you are loved by God, take a look at the cross. He sent His Son for you. This proves His love for you. Who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm beloved. And the really, really cool thing about this is that this title, this term of endearment, this term of affection, points back to, to Jesus himself. If you remember in Matthew uh, 3, Jesus grew up, he became a man, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and there came this voice from heaven. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is God the Father speaking, this is my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Like there's this declaration over the life of Jesus from the very start where God the Father speaks over him and says, this is my beloved son. He is dearly loved. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. And the incredible thing is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are found in Christ. God looks at each one of us and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. 
Y'all, in this Christmas season, would you allow that truth to wash over you? If you're a follower of Jesus, that this is who you are because of what he has done for you. If you're in Christ, you are in the family. You're in the family of God. You're a dearly loved son or daughter. This is your identity. Every other identity in your life, you've heard me say this before, it's secondary. Whatever personal or professional identity you have as mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, employee, neighbor, brother, sister, friend, whatever other identities you have, this is the first and foremost. You are a son or daughter, a dearly loved son or daughter of God. Don't miss that. Who am I? I am the beloved. This is why we can sing uh, at Christmas time. We can sing like we did this morning of the wonders of his love. It's a, an amazing, incomprehensible thing that we could be called sons and daughters of God. First John 3, 1, a couple chapters earlier, he says, what manner of love that we could be called children of God. This is why we can have joy at Christmas. So number one, who is God? God is love. Number two, what has he done? He sent his son into the world. Question three, who am I? I am beloved. I am dearly loved, son or daughter of God. Um, here is question number four. What do I do? So another way to put this is how do I live? So again, great question, but this is, notice the order. Where does this fall in order of these questions? It's, it's last, right? It's number four. So who is God? What has he done? This gives me my identity. This then tells me how I ought to live. So question number four, look through that passage. What does he tell us to do? How do we live? Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. If God so loved us, this is who he is, this is what he has done, we also ought to love one another. So if you're in church or anywhere or somebody says, hey, you need to be more loving, you need to love people. True, but where we get that ability to love is from the love of God who has loved us first. And so this is why you can be in church and just be told, do this, do this, do this, do this. No, no, no. Gospel says this is who God is. God is love. He has loved us. He, we are beloved now. Love others. So what do we do? Love one another. First John 2, a couple chapters back, this is what John said earlier. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, whoever says he's a follower of Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's how we know that we're in Christ. We walk the same way that Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? He walked in love, right? He walked in love. And so we also ought to walk in love. And so I, I do want to, I want to make sure this is clear who he's writing to. You remember who John is writing to this letter? He's writing to other believers, right? He's writing to the beloved. He's writing to followers of Jesus. And, and who does he say that we ought to love? One another. So let me make sure we understand the definition there. Love one another. Speaking to the beloved. Speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, love each other. Love each other. Now, it is very important, and even Jesus said, love, love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. But John, the Apostle John's emphasis here, his priority is love one another. Love the family of God. Love your brothers and sisters 
in Christ. In fact, in 1 John 3, just a chapter earlier, he says this. Do not be surprised, brothers. And that's a term that encapsulates brothers and sisters in the church. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because, this is evidence of our relationship with Christ, because we love the brothers. We love the family of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this uh, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brothers, for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even Jesus stressed this, y'all. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's not talking about the way that we love everyone in general. He's talking about loving one another in the church specifically, that we love our brothers and sisters. And this is how the world is going to know that you're my followers. This is how the world is going to know that the gospel is true, is by the way that people in the church love one another. Let me say it this way. The greatest apologetic. Apologetic just means argument or defense. The greatest apologetic for the gospel is the way that the people of God love one another in the church. This is the greatest apologetic, the greatest argument that Christ is real, that the gospel is true, is that God would somehow bring this ragtag group of people from different backgrounds and experiences and, and, and ethnicities and bring them into one body and that they would love one another, even if they have nothing else in common but Christ. This is a miraculous work that only God can do. And when we love one another well, it's the greatest argument to the world that God is for real. It's how we love one another. Church ought to feel like family. Church ought to feel like family because it is family. It is family. It's not like family. The church is family. The church ought to be like family. And one of the most incredible things I've seen happen in our church over the course of this year is, is that this body of believers isn't just a group of people that assemble on a Sunday morning. This is becoming more and more and more family. I see it every single week. And it's a beautiful thing because the more that we love one another, the more we'll be able to reach the world. And, and, and that, this is a pushback. This is a question. So if our goal is to reach the world, if our goal is to get the good news to people outside of these walls, how is that ever going to happen if all we do is huddle up and love each other and focus on one another? How are we ever going to reach people outside of, of this church and outside of this building? Well, listen, the goal isn't just to be a loving community, all right, that just throws our arms around one another. The goal is that we would be a loving community on mission in the world. There's a difference there a loving community on mission. So we become this family of God that so loves one another that we can invite people into the family. We have something to invite them into, right? That is the most 
attractive thing. Here, here's something I, I, I figured out when I first came to Christ. Y'all have heard my story probably a, a million times. I didn't grow up in church, knew nothing of God or the Bible or Jesus, but I had a friend who had an incredible family and started inviting me into his home, started feeding me and loving on me. And I loved my parents and loved my home, but I didn't sense a lot of love there. I didn't bring a lot of friends into my home, but man, I loved to go to the Keller's house. Like that was my jam. I loved it. And that was the introduction for me into what it looked like to follow Christ. And here's what I learned. There is something ridiculously attractive about a loving family. Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you didn't grow up experiencing that. But when I came into that family, man, I wanted, to, I wanted to hang out there. I wanted to spend my time there. I wanted to be around those people because I felt loved in that family. There's something ridiculously attractive about a loving family. But y'all, you realize that is true of the church too, right? There is something ridiculously attractive about a church family that loves one another that isn't fighting and bickering and arguing about everything, but we're united together. We don't agree on everything. We don't all look the same or talk the same or think the same, but man, we love each other and we're united together. Y'all, this is one of the reasons for this whole year of discipleship. It's not just, hey, can we, can we grow in our understanding of the Bible? Can we be more versed in scripture? No, no, no. It's because the more we grow, the deeper we grow in the truth of the gospel, the more that we understand, the more that we um, comprehend and, and grab hold of and bury ourselves in the truth of the gospel, the, the better we're going to be able to love others. The more we're going to love each other, the more we're going to love people outside of this place. Wow, this, um, when this church, when this church, and it's becoming this, and for many of us, we would say, yes, we're there, but when this church feels like family to you, when this church feels like family to you, you will bring others to be a part of this family. You will invite them in. You don't need some annoying pastor to bug you. Hey, bring people to church, all right? You don't need that. If you've experienced love and grace here, you will, you will want others to get in on that. If they don't know that in their life, you'll say, man, I found family here. You will bring them into this place. Loving one another, uh, and here's where we just, here's the gospel. This is a response to the gospel. First John 4, uh, later on in this chapter, in verse 19, he says this, we love because he first loved us. Our ability to love others, this is why it, it, it fails to just say, hey, go love people, go love people, be loving, be more loving. No, no, it's birthed out of, he has loved you first with this deep, uh, incredible love. And, and here is, here, here's the reality. The more fully you grow in his love, the more fully you're able to love others. The more fully you grow in his love, understanding it, receiving it, rejoicing in it, the more you grow in his love, the more fully you will be able to love others. So some of you would say, well, gosh, I'm not very loving. I have a hard time loving people. So my admonition, my, my exhortation to you this morning isn't, hey, be more loving. Just try harder, okay? I know it's not in your nature. Just try harder. No, no, no. That would be going to question four. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Question one, question two, question three. Who is God? What has he done in your life? How has he proven his love to you? 
Do you see it on the cross? Grow deeper in your understanding of his love for you. And as you, like, like listen, if, if you would pause for a moment this morning and just think about who you are, every thought you've ever had, every activity you've ever engaged in over the course of your entire life, you are the only one who can see the mess that is you, right? And if you would sit in that for a moment and consider that this God of the universe loves you in spite of all of that, would give his life for you, y'all, it ought to overwhelm you. It ought to blow your mind. And the more that it overwhelms you and the more that it blows your mind that you are loved by God, the more you will be able to naturally, supernaturally just love others because you have been a recipient of that kind of love. Amen? This is the kind of love that counts. And so the four questions, who is God? God is love. What has he done? He sent his son, his only son into the world to die for you. Who am I? In light of all that, I'm, I'm beloved, dearly loved by God. Now what do I do? I love one another. I love others. It's just a natural overflow of the love that I have received from God. And so maybe for you this morning, you know what? Maybe you've never received that love that God offers you. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You could never deserve it. It is a free gift that is offered to you. God loves you. He has offered himself to you. All you would do is open your heart to him and believe. Trust in him. Give your life to him and he will, he will save you from your sin. And so maybe for you this morning, this is, this is the day that maybe you need to ask a question or, or talk to somebody or, or just pray a prayer and say, God, I'm yours. I don't get all of this, but I understand you love me. I'm a sinner. I want, I want to get in on this. I want to receive your love. Maybe today you would just receive his love. And, and for others, for the rest of us, maybe you have received that. You have experienced the love of God. I just want to encourage you this week and in, in, in this season. Find a way to let that love of God flow out of you. Find a way to love one another. Maybe that looks like praying intensely and specifically for one person this week, encouraging someone, blessing them, serving them, befriending them. I don't know what it looks like, but would you open yourself up to this week and this month to being a vessel of the love of God through your life because he has first loved us. Amen. And so, Father, today I want to say thank you for the grace and the goodness of God that uh, is overwhelming, that we could never earn or deserve, but God has been freely given to us. And Lord, I just want to say thank you for that love. Lord, I pray for the one who may be here today or listening who has never experienced that love, who has never opened their heart to that kind of love Love, Lord, Lord, they may even be overwhelmed by the thought that they could be loved that deeply. Um, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today and that they would respond with just submission to you. They would put their faith in you today. Lord, I pray for all of us that have been recipients of that amazing kind of love, Lord, that we would, um, we would respond the only way that is proper. It's to worship you. That is to love you in return. That is to allow that love to spill out into the people that we know and that we come in contact with. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to love one another well. I pray that you would help us to love others with the love of Christ with which we've been loved. In Christ's name I pray.
Amen.